on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third lawn? This is the working part. Be advised, we have a woman trapped on the balcony on the fourth floor alpha bubble corner. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the alpha side. Welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. I'm sitting with a captain. How many years were you in the service? Just over 30. And he was instrumental in building, uh, what would you call it? What would be the name of that program? Member Family Assistance Program slash Critical Incident Stress Management Team. And the goal of that was for firefighters and their families or just firefighters? The CIS we thought was just for firefighters, but the MFAP, member family, it's right in the name. We wanted the families. What happens on the job affects when you go home, and what can happen at home affects when you go to work. So we wanted it to dovetail together. I'm talking to firefighters, and I'm telling them I've seen a big change in just the last few years, but you started this what year? How long ago? Well, I'm an old guy now. I'd say uh, 1988 is when our team was formed. How many members? It initially had 12 members, and it we did it backwards. We started with our SISM team first. Usually you have some kind of a, an employee assistance program. We did ours as a member family assistance because the union was giving us more support than management at the time. Um, so we wanted to recognize that it was members. And so usually you have the tree is the EAP and a branch is CIS. We sort of built the branch first and then made a tree afterwards, which was interesting. So, so for some departments that might be listening or even some organizations that might want to put something in place, how do you start it? Okay, the way that I started was I was a fairly young firefighter at the time and I'd seen some information both in print and on videos of, I, I wanna say it was Dr. George Van Fleet at the time. He was a Vancouver area counselor talking about critical incident stress. And if we don't manage it, then it can manifest itself in acting out in different ways, usually substance abuse or just um, unacceptable behavior, especially at home. So because I was mouthing off about it, uh, we had um, a really bad call and somebody said, we need to do something for this crew. So ask me. And so here I am and I'm sputtering, but luckily I had a couple of counselors in mind and we ended up forming a team due to this. And it was, it was nice. They, I, I don't know that we were um, thinking far ahead, <coughs> pardon me, both um, on, my be, on, on my actions, but also on management's actions. But we won management over and they gave us um, the funds to do this as overtime, which was unheard of at the time, to train 12 people so we would have three per shift. They also only represented, and I forget how many volunteer halls there were at the time, paid on call. They, they left one out, which I never really understood why they did that. We offered our services, the career people with our team, because we had more access to training and to team meetings and doing our <clears throat> own internal training. We offered our services to both the paid on call and to the exempt members, but our main focus was on our, our own membership 
at work. So, so hundreds of firefighters exempt and career. Yes, yes. At, at the time, there was probably, we're lucky if there was 150 career, and there was probably 300 paid on call, and um, uh, probably 15 exempt max at the time. And obviously, it's, it's um, increased in size. Uh, very few paid on call now in our department, but uh, quite a large career component now. So for an HR person or some organization that might be listening to this show, when you started it out of the gate, did you see it being effective immediately? And you've had suicides in your department. You've had challenges with substance abuse. You've had people that have been sent away for recovery. Right away, could you see it being effective? And did you have to alter as soon as you came out of the gate? It was very mixed at the beginning. You got to remember the the mentality in the departments, and there were big changes when we when we formed this. Uh, I don't believe we had any women on the job. If we did, they were just entering the workforce, and we were quick to try and get women onto our team. We wanted to have members from all the branches. We wanted dispatch represented, uh, prevention represented, the clerical uh, pool represented as well. And so we, um, we, we tried to be very inclusive that way, but we're also dealing with the dinosaurs that had the mentality that you have to be tough to do this job, so why is this affecting you? Who are usually the ones that get affected the most when they find out they, no one can be tough enough for this job. The deal was back in the day you would get your paycheck because you had to pick it up at the fire halls, and then a contingent would meet at a pub and they would have a few drinks. Sometimes people didn't leave when they should. So thinking back, these were people probably just self-medicating and that was a way of dealing with whatever their pain or their, their mental issues were and could have been before they got on the job, but this job wouldn't help. If you come on the job with me, um, some kind of mental issues, mental health issues, this job's not gonna make them better. If you deal with those mental health issues properly and then if you appreciate what we do on our job, it can give you a, a true appreciation of what life is because we can see how it can change in the, in the snap of a finger. Anyways, when we started, we would get mixed reviews from our diffusings because at the time we said we would do pure diffusings only and the next step would be to bring in a, um, a mental health professional to do a de debriefing. At the time we had, I think for our first several years, we had no debriefings. And we, and we thought we were, <clears throat> um, we were hitting it early because you try and do a diffusing. And I don't go by the, the formulas in the books. I, I believe any time you talk about an event that has impacted you, and it can be years later, is beneficial. But for us, the diffusings, we tried to do within a week if we could. They used to say within 24 hours. But to me, if it's a real huge event, your head's spinning so much in that first 24 hours that... The diffusing, I think, would be like trying to put a band-aid on something that needs stitches. So if we, we would try and go, if we could go the next day, we would. If they were going off-duty, at the end of that shift, we would check in with them before they left to see if they... And we would do sort of a one-on-one -on -one phone call and say, will you be okay for your four-off? We're setting up something. So then they know it's coming. We had some old, crusty seasoned firefighters and officers when we did some of our initial 
defusings that would say at the end, I wish we would have had this back when. And we would hear of these horrific calls that were legendary. Every department has them. And there was nothing back then. Back then was like, let's go and have some drinks and just unwind sort of thing, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing if you have a couple of drinks, but it's not, it's not the answer. That's just something to assist you until you can find the answer. And I think a mental health program such as CIS management, backed up by an EAP, member family assistance program, whatever the label is, that's what is going to give true results. But people have to buy in and they have to, they have to participate. When I started, it was quite common to go after work to have a few drinks. In fact, being a young firefighter, that that camaraderie was built outside the hall. Having those few drinks, you became closer. And that was kind of a mental health program in itself. Okay, drinking is not good. Everybody will agree to that. But the social part of that doesn't exist today. Well, it's almost like anything. I've had lifelong friends and... As soon as you move and buy a, a house, townhouse, whatever, and then you start a family, and you might, we all started in the same place. I grew up in Vancouver, but as soon as we got old enough to get married and buy a property, we couldn't afford Vancouver, so we would move out to the burbs. So I end up in Delta, friends end up in Burnaby, Coquitlam. You're lucky if you see them twice a year, because now your your life revolves around your area that you live and your, your kids. So it gets harder and harder to have that social aspect at work. Although the fire service isn't work. It's like, it's just a different life because you spend more money or more time with your fire crews than you do with your family. So the social aspect outside of the hall can be hard to do because as soon as you put in these long shifts and then when your shift's over, especially if you have kids, you want to go home and help your partner with your kids, uh, participate in your kids' events. And so it's even hard for you to say, oh, I'm going to play hockey or I'm going to get on a baseball team or I'm going to go for a dinner or drinks. And don't get me wrong, I don't see a problem with going and developing a little social aspect with some drinks as long as it's reasonable. Like, are we going to have two over dinner or are we going to need to have a driver because we've had more than our what we should have? And the trouble is we don't want to be the person that's the first responder that causes some injury because we're self-medicating, over-socializing. Well, without that social piece, you've seen a big change. The program started how long ago? Nine, 1988, and I, I, I put in 20 years. So I was uh, probably, a, by the time we got ours established, I was a 10-year firefighter, and I put in 20 years. And afterwards, uh, the... the Department and Union were kind enough to say, we will bring you back kind of on a contract basis, but not a real contract. So they were going to pay me to come and do some further training with crews and whatnot. And we tried to work it in, and they were trying to train on shift. And sure enough, you'd go to a hall, and they would get a call. And they'd be gone for an hour. And then you'd come back, and there'd be another call. And so it was really hard to do it if you couldn't pull them out of service, which is hard for management and staffing requirements to do. So I don't know, they've come up with some, a, a couple of different concepts, but after my 20 years, I have to tell you, I was kind of done, and it was nice when I did it, and I was a union member, because I always felt I had the department and the union having my back. When we formed our team, I should first say this, when we formed our team, 
how I selected, because I was given the task of selecting people, and this was before we had to go by seniority and everything else. And so I, my um, criteria for team selection was you had to be approachable and you had to be available. Are we allowed to swear in this? Mm -hmm. Oh, good. So the purpose was if somebody on their four days off goes and spends those four days at a cabin somewhere and is never available, then even though they're someone I would have probably, and now it's not limited now. To me, you can have as big a team as you want in my eyes. So if somebody was very, very approachable and acceptable by, by peers and they were gone for their four days, I would have them on the team now because then I can utilize them while they're at work. But in the day, we wanted people to be available sort of at work and after work. They had to be approachable. They had to be available. Approachable is very important because you don't want someone pulling up to a fire hall after the team's been told, we're going to send over a team member and the crew has been told they're going to have this diffusing at their end of shift. We like to, if we could, at the end of shift, do a check-in before they go home. And so if, if they are all ready to do it that day or even the next day, you pull in and you're a person that the crew's looking out the window going, oh no, this asshole's here and we're supposed to tell that person how this call has affected us, you're dead in the water already. So approachable and available, and that's how we picked our first 12 members. So a good friend of mine, actually a lot of friends of mine were, were members on that team, and I know a couple of them, I know one in particular, really struggled with getting multiple debriefings in a day and there was a cost to him doing it how do you protect those members that are out there doing the well that was that was one of the responsibilities because i was a coordinator for the 20 years every year i'd say hey i've been steering this boat does somebody else want to drive and it didn't happen it was like it was easier to follow than it is to steer which i didn't mind i like steering for the most part so part of that responsibility as a coordinator I would ask them, if you do an intervention, please call me. And I don't care if it's a one-on-one, -on -one, if it's on the phone, or if it's whatever. And I know um, one of the people that you might be talking about got blitzed, just happened to be in the wrong place at the right time to do several of these in a very short period of time. And it does take a toll. And so I would say to, no, you got to call me now. And if I have to, I'll come and do it because you can't do any more for a while. We need you to rest up because we you get a good person. You don't want to lose them. You don't, you know, it's great. You think they're a workhorse. Well, that's for other tasks. That's fabulous. Let the workhorse go. But in this, the toll and the, the, the load is too heavy for someone to do it without a break and a chance to refresh. 20 years. So in that time, you saw people without question, it reduced absenteeism, saw people get help for addiction also would you say prevented suicides you know i i was never told by anybody and that'd be a very hard thing to share that your program saved my life but i was told by people who members of our mfap team had done an intervention a couple of times with substance abusers that were coming they were functioning substance abusers and we hear horror show stories about pilots coming to work and they're they're functioning but they're impaired but they're able to do their job and they're you know that's in all walks of life but you, you know you don't want that your pilot to be a functioning substance abuser or your first responder so 
this one person uh, finally, the, you know, because they always think they're, no one else knows. It's their secret when everybody else knows. And so they got taken out of service from the shift, taken home, mm-hmm. and they're marked uh, absent for um, whatever it is, the 30 days to go to a program. And I always wondered at the, or I sh- shouldn't say always, I wondered at the time if they were resentful about that. And that person, anytime you bring it up, will say, all I can do is thank the people that did that because they saved my life. And I, I don't know if it's his actual life, which it could be because he was spiraling down, but it saved his marriage, saved his relationship with his kids, and saved his job. And this person was re- able to retire as an officer and a respected officer on the job. That It wasn't like, I'm worried about that person's orders. You would follow him because now he's clean and functioning, fully functioning, not just a functioning substance abuser. And I know we were talking off the air before. You you say that this program, and I'm sure it has with lots of departments, save lives. We have had suicides on our job. I believe both of the two recent ones were after I retired. When I went into this, it was to stop possibly self-prescribing. It was to stop um, maybe har- self-harm, harming your family, harming your relationships because you weren't dealing with this properly. Whereas to me, the best thing that you can do, the best medicine after a terrible call is to talk to someone about it. And that someone should be someone that you have a great deal of trust in. And most of the members on our program were of that quality. The other thing that you do, and I think it's very important if it's done at the right time, is humor can be a great assist to this. If there's no gallows humor after a, a really bad call, that's your number one sign something should be done. If we can come out of a call and yeah, it, it, that was a sticky one, but someone's going to crack a joke and then somebody else adds to it or whatever. And yes, for the normal people out there that don't do this work, they, they might not believe that, but that can really get you through the over the hump. If it's something that's really ter- terrible or involves kids or something like that, There'll be none of that humor, and that's your main indicator. We need to do something. So we're we're good friends. Uh, you've seen me grow throughout the fire service, oh, and yes. I I used humor probably at the highest level, and I think it worked for me. I mean, I I did have a meltdown in the middle of my career, but I I think humor. I enjoyed coming to work. I mean, you probably clearly saw that. I really did, and I would like to think that people liked working with me. Not everybody, <laughs> but. Um, I believe in that humor piece. I really, truly do. Well, I know the dry cleaners profited highly from your humor with all your flower bombs and the water bombs. And yes, they're, and, and you're legendary. You and a couple of your associates are legendary with your, your pranks. And always when I dealt with people like you or some of our other members who always like to take it to the next level, when I got pranked, I tried not to prank back because I always thought, okay, I got vision in both eyes and all 10 fingers. I'm going to call it a win on my side. But I, I, I believe, like they say, comedy is a medicine that is used in a lot of areas now that laughter does help. It can help with stress. It can help with, uh, with pain. It can help with all kinds of issues. And I think that's an important aspect that does get overlooked. And when departments have people like you and the other jokesters, you know, none of your stuff was mean. It was it was funny. And so when you have stuff like that, what a what a great relief. So 
Thanks for doing that. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to mention. Uh, I want to go back, though. You said there are departments out there that are trying to start, and where do they start? There's an easier way now. Now, I've been, I've been retired for 10 years, so I'm not as in tune as I used to be. But I was lucky in several ways because of being one of the early larger departments to start this team and get it going from the, the ground up. We even had big departments like we would combine and let's brainstorm. So we're, we're inventing the same wheel together, not inventing different or, or doing the same wheel separately. We're kind of doing it as a, a joint effort. And we had to figure out some system to include our paid on call. And the way I sold that to our team, because sometimes there's factions, oh, we're union, we're career, that, this isn't their full-time job, they're supplementing us if we need the staff or whatever, they're in remote areas where they don't need a full-time fire hall. Well, my thing was, I don't care who you are, if you do our job, and usually maybe the person that does it not as frequently can be more affected by that bad call because they haven't built up that armor yet from little call, little call, little call. Oh, I got a bad call and you got a bit of armor built up to help deal with it. So it'll affect them the same as it affects us, the same as a non-first responder stops at a motor vehicle incident and, and tries to help as a good Samaritan. Well, man, they first of all, they, they're trying to help somebody who's hurt or injured or whatever, and they're trying to do whatever they can. Maybe they've had some first aid training, but taking a first aid course and going out and doing the real thing is a lot different than doing it in the classroom. And there's, there's options for them now where there wasn't 30 years ago. What we decided to do is we're going to do it, but we're not going to, for politics and, and everything else, we're not going to combine the paid on call with the career. We'll do the paid on call separately and we'll do the career separately. And if there's information that we can give about the event, not about what someone said, but if there's information maybe about a, a victim recovery or something like that would be very important or if, you know, especially like, oh, it took us a long time to gain access, but then you find out from someone else that, oh, with the conditions, that person was dead long before we even got the call, that then they're not there. It releases some of their guilt that it took them a long time to get in. Anyway, so we, we did, we, you know, but we would talk to big departments, small departments, even volunteer departments. So we ended up forming Mainland Fire Service CIS Association. And we had this great plan that we would have career volunteer union management. Anybody could bring members into this association. We'd do group training. We would troubleshoot. We'd do all kinds of things, try to problem solve. This happened. I don't know what to do, those sort of things. So that was a great resource for networking and whatnot. During all this time that we're doing this, one of my department's members goes, is there any basis on how a team gets formed? Because WorkSafe says there's supposed to be critical and stress language for every department now about having some resources for critical incident stress management. So this member said, when you go in there, it just says, should have policies. What would be a policy? So myself and a, a cohort that from another department, we did lots of joint training together, got very involved in this. And we had a psychologist with us. We had a fire chief at the time from another department who was very CIS involved. And then there was the two of us, and I think we had a rep from the Volunteers uh, Firefighters Association who would periodically make uh, meetings. And we started to discuss what this policy, the language of it should be. 
and I stayed for only a couple of meetings, but my, my co-trainer was on it like a dog on a bone and ended up developing the actual policy. And it, it was, up until I retired 10 years ago, part of WorkSafe language as one of their policies covering first responders. So for a department or even an organization that wants to start this program? There were lots of um, trial and error stuff when we were starting. The number one thing I think you need is someone that's very passionate about it to be the advocate. If you don't have a, an advocate fighting for it, it's easily swept under the rug. One of the things I forgot to tell you was you said going to, like HR has to be involved. Well, when we we're trying to start our HR program, the, the HR manager of the day said, oh, yeah, we understand firefighters have issues. We'll, we'll give money for counseling. We just need to know their name and why they need to go. So I said, really, um, you haven't heard about any program. The cornerstone of it is confidentiality. So you're just, you're going to make a policy that no one's going to use. So to convince them, we said, you got to figure this is like in 1988. We said, how about if we do this? We want funds available for a member and possibly their family to go for some counseling and it'll be $300 per family per calendar year, half of which will be paid by union funds and half by the city. And that convinced them to do it. And there'd be comp total confidentiality with this. And initially we said the union will pay and bill the city, but they didn't want it that way. And we had, you know, we learned along the way, but at the time the city had like 90 days and 60 days of paying. Well, you can't have counselors, they have cash flow. So we got them to pay within 30 days. And I said to them, we are not gonna waste union money. So it's not like people are gonna scam this because why would you wanna to go to a counselor to scam it anyways? You know, it's not a, the best way to make money and it's only $300. But at that time you could get a good counselor for 50 bucks an hour. So you're getting about six hours of counseling if you're lucky. So that started us with our member family assistance program, which was after we already had the CIS team. So the idea was if we went and did a diffusing and then nobody on the team ex uh, crew that was involved needed more except maybe one member, then we could refer them to a counselor and they would have up to $300. Well, now WorkSafe's involved. They got this sensitive claim, which is another thing. Some departments think, oh, we don't need a team. WorkSafe has a sensitive claim division that does CISD briefings. Well, the only trouble with that is, I think they'll do it for smaller departments, so they'll do it if you don't have a program, but when they come and do it once, after that, they're not, they don't want to be your CIS team. They want you to have your own peer team to get your, your people prepared. So maybe it's not a big one every time you have an event. These are ones that can be dealt with with your peers. But the sensitive claim, that's a really good resource for people to, to know. And what happens when it all goes to work safe? Organizations actually don't end up owning their shit. Oh, yeah. So yes. you just dump it off and you let them deal with it. And you know what? Nothing changes within the organization. I want to tell you a story, and you might not know this, but it's important for you to hear this because you started this program and you know I left and I was a chief in another department. And I used the basis of your program to sell my HR on exactly what you said. And every one of the members in my department gets $3,000 for mental wow. health counseling that's fabulous so one of the things that is a really good 
news story. You've done that and other departments are following that lead and I guaranteed them there would be less absenteeism, I, they would get more productive and efficient employees and there's no doubt in my mind that that is happening. And I think for listeners and organizations that are thinking about doing this program, it pays off in spades and we'll finish with that. Sounds great. Signing off. There you go. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercover Mental Health. Appreciate everyone who's out there trying to change the stigma around mental health. Thank you. Thank you.